Watch your P's and Q's now, ladies and gentlemen. All right, so we are, uh, I want to wrap around and finalize uh, the concepts of faith and deeds. And then uh, perhaps we'll touch a little bit on the, uh, the concept of uh, belief and the various kinds of beliefs that there are. And that will finish up chapter two. And if we have time, which doesn't look like it since we're about, uh, we only have about four, uh, maybe 40 minutes. Uh, we'll uh, look at start looking at chapter three, um, but uh, I wanted to at least uh, summarize at least the concept and the problem that you have as we read scripture, and as we look at uh, uh, what the issue is between faith and deeds. Uh, in Romans three twenty eight, it says Paul says, "For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law." James, on the other hand, in chapter two verse twenty four says. Uh, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So it looks like there's a huge contradiction there. And I think that as we dig below the surface a little bit, we'll be able to put it into, into hopefully into a context that makes sense. Um, the, 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 the relationship between the free gift of grace and Christian responsibility is probably less difficult than the limited ability of human language to express what you know God is trying to teach us and, and show us. And I, as I've looked at it, I've come up with, and, and this is through the help of others as well in the study, um, it's not like I came with these on my own, uh, but as I sit there going, yeah, that's right, yeah, they, they, they pretty much nailed it. Uh, confusion over the meaning of terms. Confusion over the use of Genesis uh, 15.6, which, by the way, is the passage says that Abraham, so Abraham was justified by faith, and it was counted, it says, uh, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him for righteousness, is the passage in, in uh, Genesis 15.6. So that's another issue, is what does that mean, and how is it used? Because Paul appear, appears to use it one way. James appears to use it another way, and we want to try to unpack how that happens. And then lastly, <clears throat> uh, uh, confusion over understanding that there are actually three tenses of salvation that happen in Scripture. And the problem is, I think, I think the, pro the biggest problem is that we don't appreciate what each writer is saying. And, and what tense of salvation? Is it past tense, present tense, or future tense? And as we understand that, I think it will help us. So let's take a look at this and just dig just a little bit below this uh, surface and see if we can't kind of come up with, I hope. My concern is that if you don't nail this down, this is so important to our understanding of faith that um, I, I want you to, I want us to get it right. I want it to be nailed down in your mind so that there is no no question at a later date. And go, oh, what were they talking about? How does that mean? So, first of all, you have the, the verbal similarity, if you will, the, 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 the commonality, the confusion of terms. And I think it can be resolved by recognizing that words can carry multiple meanings. And Paul and James intend different meanings for the use of the same terms. For Paul... Uh, as well as James, saving faith means accepting the gospel, and it includes a personal commitment to Jesus Christ's mission. Um, so that's important, but the problem comes down to, uh, for Paul, uh, Paul is talking about uh, 
the, the acts of obedience to the Jewish law, which he argues. And, it, and he's saying that, it, that uh, he does this to, to demonstrate the fact that our faith, our election, and our status with the family of God is not based upon our deeds, but upon faith, our trust in Christ. So uh, think of it this way. Um, Paul came from a very legalistic background. Judaism of his time was, especially Pharisees, incredibly legalistic. Lots and lots of laws. Not only the 613 that are listed in Scripture, but a myriad of others around them that help to make sure that you don't cross the line and break any of the 613. So a series of, uh, of signposts, if you will, or, or, or fences to stop you from doing this. And the result of that is often... What happens when we have been in, involved in gross sin, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the Judaism was in gross sin, but think about this from the perspective of somebody who comes to Christ. When you have been forgiven much in Christ, you go overboard in the opposite way often in your salvation. You know, as an example, if you were, uh, if you had a problem with drink, uh, you might become a, a total teetotaler as a result of that because you feel like if i don't you know I'm, i you just feel that it's going to be wrong to do anything and there are other issues think of any other issue you have if you've gone into whatever the sin might be when you are relieved of that when you are forgiven that you 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 will run away from that sometimes overboard running away so you have paul who is a legalist who's saying i don't want to have anything to do with the idea of works being important to my salvation. Um, I think, really, that that's the issue that Martin Luther had. Remember, Martin Luther didn't start out to, to uh, uh, break off from the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform it from within. That was his goal. And the issue that he was dealing with specifically in the Middle Ages was this, indulgences. Indulgences were being sold basically like a get out of jail free card mm -hmm. because they were raising funds to in, for Rome. Rome was raising funds to, to build a basilica that you all know and have seen if you ever watch any of the masses that happen at like at Christmas or Easter where you see in, in St. Peter's Basilica. So funds were being raised all throughout the Catholic world uh, during that time and they were selling indulgences. On the other hand, the, the, the sponsor, the, 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 the man who was uh, underwriting Luther was a, a, a local you know, nobleman, I forget his name off the top of my head, um, who was trying to raise funds to build his own cathedral. And so from a political perspective, he's going, they're, they're, they're at war with each other, right? And so, and, and the whole issue of, well, do I have to do works? When, when Martin Luther realizes that, that faith comes, that, that salvation comes by faith alone, he goes 180 degrees the opposite way. And, there, he won't, and so he's not happy with what he reads in, in James at all. Because he says, well, it, it says that you have to have deeds. Totally under, misunderstanding what, what James is saying, but really a, a, identifying with what Paul says. So that's one of the problems we run into. James, on the other hand, is talking about 
the deeds not of obedience to the, the Jewish law specifically, but the deeds of the actual law. He wanted the deeds to of, of Christian love is what he was looking for. He calls it the royal law that we're fulfilling. The royal law of what? Love. Love others, love God. Love God, love others. So the for him, the, the key is action. For James, deeds are an act of charity that flow from a life that's lived out in concert, in communion with God. And that is a, a that and for God, it, uh, it is a preliminary or, or primarily, or preeminently uh, mercy that's being talked about here. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, for, Christ Jesus neither, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's probably what James is attempting to say there. Now, the second problem I sometimes run into is this whole idea of past tense, present tense, future tense, etc. And additionally, what were the three things I said here? Uh, confusion of the use of Genesis 15, 6. So in here we have Paul looking at what happens with um, and being, a, and being considered part of the uh, the group, uh, a part of the faith where he says uh, it was credited, he believed God, it was credited to him for righteousness from um, from from Paul's perspective, this is what God did in the past. Absence of any worthiness of Abraham. Abraham does nothing. It is all about it's all about what God has done in the past. James, on the other hand, passes over the issue of circumcision. Remember, what's the how does how do you prove that you're a part of the family of God if you are? A, uh, take care, Larry. Uh, if you are going to be a part of, of uh, the family of God, you, in the Old Testament, you do what? Circumcision is signs. Once you've accepted uh, a belief in um, a, mono, uh, a monotheistic God, and you become a, a part of the family of God, you, you, you are circumcised, right? So James overlooks that, goes beyond that, and says, what is going on now? The real question uh, is, you know, uh, the starting question is almost always posed in the terms of James disagreeing with Paul, but maybe James isn't disagreeing with Paul. Think about this. What does Jesus have to say? Because James is, is, is constantly uh, referring to and using Christ's teaching uh, early on. Remember, this is the first, one of the first books written in, in the New Testament. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 44, each tree is recognized by its own fruit. In other words, you have to produce something. You got to produce something. Um, in another passage in Matthew chapter 25, verse 44 and following, people come to the Lord and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or in need of clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these, least of these, you did not uh, You did not do for me. If you didn't do it for them, you didn't do it for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That sounds an awful lot like what Jesus is saying. 
it sounds like James and, and Jesus are kind of talking about the same thing. So then we come to the final possibility, and that is what salvation are we talking about? Where is the salvation located? Um, where is it anchored at? Is it anchored in the past? Is it anchored in the present? Is it anchored in the future? Well, we know that in James chapter uh, or Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest so no one can boast about it, right? So it's an accomplished fact. It's in the past. It is what we would call justified. Justification. <clears throat> Salvation has three aspects to it. Justification is the first one, where you are declared righteous. Is, and, and again, the easy way to remember that is just as if I've never sinned. I've been, now it doesn't say you haven't never sinned. It just says that you've been justified and you are declared righteous. Now in the present, uh, Paul and uh, Paul says this as well as, as James, and that we call this being, we are being saved. And this is uh, sanctification. In 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, by the way, I am really seriously considering, after we're done with James, looking at 1 Corinthians, which would naturally flow into 2 Corinthians, unfortunately. But we got I think right now is a good time to deal with those two books. It, it strikes at the heart of some of the issues that the church is facing today. And uh, I wanted, we want to take a look and see what does God actually say in those books. Uh, so I'm really seriously, unless God tells me otherwise, that's kind of the direction that uh, uh, that we're looking to head towards after after James. But anyhow, in First Corinthians chapter one, verse eighteen, it says, "For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." Notice the being saved. Philippians two, verse twelve says this. Therefore, my dear friends. As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there is an aspect to which we have been saved. We are currently being saved, and we call that sanctification. It's the process. We're probably not going to, uh, well, let me put it this way. I, I can't speak for you personally, but I have a pretty strong inkling that none of you are going to be fully sanctified this side of, of eternity. But, and, and I, I know for certain I'm not. So there's also a future hope of salvation. Uh, and, and Paul writes about this as well in Romans chapter 13. He says, and do this, understand the pre uh, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. You see the idea that it's it's in the future, it hasn't fully come yet? Um, Philippians 3, 2 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we, we eagerly await a savior from there as though it's not yet fully happened. So there, there's an aspect to which we have been saved, that's justification. We are in the process of being saved. That's the sanctification. We will finally fully be saved when Christ appears and takes us home, however that happens, whether it's in a rapture or whether it's uh, we, we die and, and our, our soul goes to heaven with him. Uh, and that's the glorification. 
Now, the final glorification will be when the body is renewed and, and brought back the soul and the spirit and the body are all put back together. So part of the problem we have is, um, is understanding that I think Paul and James are not in disagreement. James is writing about present tense. Paul is writing in, in the earlier passages in Romans about a past tense, about something that's happened in the past. God has saved us. We are we stand before God as though we are fully saved, and yet we are in the process of being saved, which is what James is talking about. So, uh, I'll just comment on this. Uh, Paul's insistence on salvation by faith through grace alone stemmed from his own previous experience. I already talked about this in Judaism, in which he claims to have misunderstood the law as, it, as, it, as a talisman of nationalistic pride. It also came in the context of his long battle with the Judaizers. And once Paul understood that the Jew and the Gentile are on equal footing before God relative to election, uh, and that election could not be based on merit, either personal or national, he was committed to the proposition of grace as a free gift. So I think that's our problem as we, we look at this. Paul's looking at it from the past and saying, no, 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 I was saved fully. It had nothing to do with what I'm doing. James is looking at it and saying, yeah, but you're working out your salvation by doing good deeds. That's how we work out our salvation. That's our sanctification process. All right, so if I killed that, or killed it a little bit, huh? Uh, Bonhoeffer, if I was going to paraphrase Bonhoeffer on this, I would say this. When Christ calls you, he calls you to come and die. Die to yourself. That's the hard part. It's the part I don't want to do. I'm constantly, you know, if there is a if there is proof in resurrection, it's proof in the resurrection of my unrighteousness, of my old man. I keep thinking I've killed him off, and for some strange reason he keeps coming back. You know, it's that whole idea that you know, I present my body a living sacrifice. My problem is too often I crawl off the altar after doing that. You know, I need to lay, keep putting myself there. Don't you think that uh, when we we act out our faith through good deeds, it actually reinforces our faith and makes it stronger? Oh, I think I, that's a great observation. I mean, I... The, the feeling, the spiritual feeling I get when doing something like that just lifts me up and makes me want to do it again or do it more. Uh, yeah, I think, you, I think you might have hit on something. I think when we do something and we do it for the right reasons, God gives us, you know, I hesitate to use it, but the warm fuzzies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we know that we've, we've done something that, that God approves of, and we know we kind of have his... Uh, a spiritual uh, okie dokie, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But don't don't you feel that even not just in doing something for somebody else, but but not putting yourself first, and and uh, yeah. and, and you feel God is like, and just I, I just feel a sense of peace uh, mm. when that happens. That I, that I feel more right with God when that when mm. I I like that put away like myself that. you guys are on I think you guys are on target I really do it's good any other thoughts before we go on 
This uh, Genesis 15.6, I was just flipped back there and was looking at that. <clears throat> I really don't see the controversy. I mean, you're cherry-picking one verse out of Abraham's whole story. And, uh, yeah, God justified him, but, heck, he had already moved halfway across his known world with his family. I mean, he was acting out his faith. And this last thing was just his acceptance that one day he would have a son. Um, that's just one aspect of his relationship with God. So, yeah, I don't see any controversy there. Well, you know, I, I, I like that. I, that's, that's good. I think the issue with Paul, Paul is looking at something that, you know, God, Abraham chooses to believe God is you're going to get this. And so it's counted to him for righteousness. It's a, remember, it's kind of an accounting term. It means you put to his, you credit it to his account. On the other hand, James is now looking at that. What is James looking at? He goes way beyond that and looks all the way over to God having fulfilled his promise and giving him Isaac. And then God, and then God says, oh, by the way, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and I want you to build an altar there, and I want you to lay your son on the altar, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. What's more important, my relationship with God or the gift that God gave me? And that's the, and and that's what James James is saying. He did this in showing that he truly believed in God. It was an act of faith that he had. How often, if God were to take away from you whatever it is that you most have desired and God has given you, would you still trust God? Would you still believe that he was a good God, that he had your best interest at heart? Like Job, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Think of how how the struggle of this is the, everything has been, is put on that one child. And now God's saying, do you love me more than the child? You love me more than the gift. How often have I said to God, no, I like the gift. I, I want the gift. I don't care about you as much as I care about the gift. You ever had a kid do that to you? There's, you know, uh, there's also, you're killing somebody. You know, it's a commandment. You're fighting oh, yeah. that law that you've been living with. Of course, on the other side of the coin, all the people around him are got no problem with human sacrifice. Well, okay, but I'm, I'm just saying you're like, you know, having. Oh yeah, you're asking, from... you're asking, you're asking an awful lot of somebody that says, you know, don't, don't kill, and you've got all these things you're supposed to, <laughs> and then you're doing everything you've been taught. Well, yeah, and and you know, sometimes I mean. God says something to me, and I'm like, really? Do you really? Is that really you talking? Do you really want me to do that? I can't imagine. You know, you need to sacrifice your child. Well, wait, I'm not supposed to kill anybody. You know, there's like a whole bunch of reasons not to do it. Plus, and how much? Every, every promise was made from that son. But in uh, Abraham's time, there was no law. This is pre-law. Yeah, but they also understood you weren't supposed to kill. We knew that because of oh, I don't know. Let's say Cain and Abel. Just saying. God wasn't too happy with Cain. So we, we pretty much knew it was not, not a good idea to kill people. We have to understand one thing, you know, for the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So I think God wants to show off through us. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's, you know. a, it's a, that's it's a 
visible, if you will, expression of his love. Sure. Yeah. You know. And, and he uses a, a body, a flesh body. He says, by the way, you're dead. I come in, you're alive. And my expression of your faith in me is you acting upon it. You know. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was, he's the maker of all things. He did stuff, if you will. And he expects us to do stuff, if you will. He motivates yeah. us. You know? I, I still find it absolutely fascinating that according to Hebrews, Abraham believed in the promise of God, even to the point of saying, if God wants me to kill my son, he will raise him up from the dead. That blows me away. I don't know that I could have come up with that in my thought process. And I think I'm a pretty smart guy, but I look at that and I go, that would not have been on my radar at all. Talk about faith. Are you willing to trust God when it looks like everything is going to, you know, excuse the expression, but we've all used it, hell in a handbasket? I think, too, it's it's important to not only trust God, but sometimes in the midst of everyone, even other brothers or sisters, we just, we have to believe of what he's saying, and he's going to back it up. And we That's what faith is all about. Yeah, and, and inevitably what I've found in my life is that it God never does it the way I'd expect it. He never does it quite, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to give you your son, but I want you to kill him first. You know, I'll give him back to you. Or at least be willing to kill him, right? God says, I want you to do this. And, and I was going to say, he didn't even just give him his son. He, he made him wait for him. Oh, he, yeah. He, he had, 25 years <laughs> or so. Yeah. Oh, and way past when you expect it. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and then he's like, oh, okay, I want him back. Oh, man. That's a that's a lot, man. So that comes back to our final few minutes here. I want to talk about the, the idea of faith or belief and how that plays out. Because we think of faith as being saving faith, but, you know, there it is a, at times it is a process. There are people that make a decision to trust Christ and it's immediate. And, every, you know, everything just, everything clicks into place. And then there's, there, there are those even in our midst today who have said, well, I kind of always believed, but it, it finally crystallized at a, at a particular point in time. But up, but I was believing every step of the way until it finally all made sense to me. And I think that's kind of what happens in a lot of lives. I'll give you this example. Um, Jesus has a group of people that follow him, not only the 12, but a whole other group. They're following him. And it's starting with the very first miracle in Cana, in John chapter 2, verse 11. He says, uh, this was the first of his miraculous signs. Remember, uh, John only gives like seven signs in the entire, you know, all the other books have got miracles galore. But not when it comes to John. John is very particular. He picks out just specific miracles because he wants to prove a point. So he says in John chapter 2, verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. By the way, I always think it's kind of cool. The very first sign that Jesus did 
was he, he made wine at a party. Jesus doesn't mind going to parties. I think that's awesome. I said, for, that's the first miracle. I'm not going to raise the dead. I'm not going to heal somebody. I'm going to throw. A, I'm going to help throw a party. Provide the, the the refreshments. I think that's awesome. So he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This belief, we assume, was saving faith, and that would appear to be true because in John chapter three, verse sixteen, he says, "For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him." shall not perish but have eternal life but just a few chapters later in chapter 6 verse 66 it says that many of the disciples turned back because of the hard saying and and they did they no longer followed him so they had faith but then they didn't have faith it says they had a hard time believing it Does that sound familiar to any of you that sound like any parables that we're seeing some parables that go on there at times? Well, it's putting faith to practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He says, uh, in this, he says, um, he's talking about you have to eat my flesh of the Son of Man. And you're going, man, that's a hard one. Who can accept it? This is a hard teaching. It says, this is the bread that came down to you from heaven. That's all in chapter 6. And it says, who can accept it? And aware of this, his disciples grumbled among themselves. And Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he, he was before? The Spirit gives life to the flesh. Uh, uh, gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The word I've spoken to you are the Spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you uh, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And from this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is where, G uh, where one of the great sayings that, that Peter has is, is Jesus says to the, the, the 12, he says, do you want to leave too? Do you? And he's talking to the 12, and Simon, Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. So there is a possibility of having an intellectual faith, but saying, you know what? That's way too much that I have to do. I'm not willing to do this and turning back because it's too hard. So belief of some of the disciples was not, here's, here's my 50 cent term today, salific, salific, S-A-L-V-I-F-I-C, salific. In other words, it's not salvation that happens as a result of this. Jesus goes on to talk about um, the raising of Lazarus in John chapter uh, 11. He says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not here so that you may believe. It's like, haven't, they haven't believed yet? I'm not sure that the disciples fully got it until after the resurrection, beyond mm -hmm. perfectly honest with you. So Jesus apparently holds that faith the disciple possess is growing towards salvific, salvific, salvific faith 
Um, you could say that John and James can use the word faith to plot locations along the timeline of how you come to know Christ and fully believe in him. John recognizes that those who recognize that um, uh, that Jesus uh, that in Jesus God is at work but refuse to believe. There are those that that believe first but turn away, and then there are those who believe but whose desire for worldly praise overpowers their belief, and there are those who grow towards salvation, and and finally their saving faith is manifest in obeying I don't know the commandments of God, love one another. Let us show them and know you're my disciples if you're at war with each other, right? Oh, no, that's not what it says. John 15, verses 9 and 10 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. So for James, there's at least at least two. I think there's three kinds of faith. There's that intellectual faith we talked about, you know, which is I, we term dead faith. And then there's emotional faith, you know, that combines with with intellectual, and we call that demonic faith. And then the third kind of faith is dynamic or active faith, is one way one writer put it. So I think what James is calling us to is integrity, and it's a call to to love the gospel. Um, I got a couple of minutes so I can, I can pull this out. There's an interesting book if, if for those of you who are willing to, to read um, unique things. Um, a guy by the name of Stephen Carter is uh, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Yale University. He's the author of a couple of books. He had one, The Cultural Disbelief, How American Law and Politics Trivialize Religious Devotion. That's an interesting, that would be an interesting book to read. There's a second one, though, called Integrity. His, his definition of, uh, he says that the definition of integrity is a philosophical, uh, is in philosophical literature, which is uh, living life according to a consistent set of principles. He says that's inadequate. And he gives us an example of the Nazi regime. They were very consistent in what they believed and what they practiced, but they were consistently wrong. Carter goes on to say that integrity means that living life according to a deeply discerned set of principles is what is important. He's aware that this definition does not guarantee morality, but he is writing in and for contemporary pluralistic American culture, and one can no longer assume that a common religious or Christian moral framework exists. So, however, he does point out that the current popular definition of tolerance as the suspension of moral judgment is erroneous, foolhardy, and dangerous. Tolerance in a democracy, he says, means to be open to dialogue with those of different <clears throat> opinions. And in contemporary America, it ought to mean an openness to dialogue with those who embrace an ethic based on religious principle. Of course, the problem with that is that nobody wants to do that. If you don't believe in, like I do, and don't say it in the exact same words that I do, you must be an enemy. Call, James is calling us, I think, to, to consistent living according to certain Christian principles. One, I think he wants to do this. I think he wants to bring 
he says, when we do this, when we live according to, when we, we live in integrity and live according to Christian principles, we bring glory to God. And isn't that what we're all about? We're supposed to glorify God with what we do. I think it sets the pattern uh, of life uh, is part of our rightful heritage. James says, growing up in faith is what makes us mature and complete. And our ult- it ultimately for our benefit to grow into what God intends us to do. And by the way, if we don't, God's going to make us grow up kicking and screaming the whole way there. And then I think the third thing is this. There's something that others find attractive about lives that are lived with consistency. Wouldn't it be interesting <coughs> to live a life that's consistent? Um Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a book that if you haven't read, it would be worth taking a look at. At some point in time, it's been translated into English, which is nice because it's hard to read in the original German. Just saying for a guy who doesn't read German. Uh, it's called The Cost of Discipleship. And I've, I've handed out before, I've handed out some uh, a little slip that had the difference between cheap grace and cost of grace. Mm-hmm. Cheap grace is that type of faith that doesn't necessarily lead into action because it doesn't demand a change of heart. And this this is what Bonhoeffer says about cheap grace. He says, it's grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God, the love of God taught as Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to an idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure the remission of sins. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. In contrast, Bonhoeffer calls it costly grace, and he says it's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eyes which cause him to stumble. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Only only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. goes on to say that faith can no longer mean just sitting still and waiting. We must rise and follow him. The call frees them, frees us from all earthly ties and binds us to Jesus Christ alone. We must burn our boats and plunge into an absolute insecurity in order to learn the demand of, and the gift of Christ. Obedience both precedes faith and is the consequence of faith. <laughs> That's hard. That sounds like a like kind of gobbledygook, doesn't it? Obedience proceed, both precedes faith and is the consequence of faith. In order to have faith, you have to be obedient. In order to, the consequence of having faith is being obedient. Makes sense to me. Good. Good. <laughs> Critics of American culture rightly decry the untrammeled uh, violence and sexual uh, malevolence that gangster rap employs like grease on the skids of antinomial crusade, not for justice, but for commercial success. 
and perhaps the evangelical community has been too slow to recognize the real needs in our society. It's a complex of factors that can crush those affected. Who will be Abraham and who will be Rahab today? I'll leave it there. All right, we will stop the recording so you may now speak freely.